Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire you to take action to be all you can be. And today my guest is Bobby Webster. Bobby has a rare combination of business acumen and music knowledge. A graduate of the University of Oxford in music and the Royal College of Music in London, she also combines this with an MBA from the University of Western Australia. Bobby is passionate about using her commercial experience to connect audiences with music and give musicians opportunities to share their talent. In the UK, she was founding member of the UK-based electric string quartet Bond, which signed to Decca Records. And in 2000, she moved to Australia and immersed herself in a corporate career. Then in 2008, she left this life to create North Street Music, which formed Perth Symphony Orchestra and later Perth Chamber Orchestra. And these have performed to well over 140,000 people while play, um, while paying more than one and a half million dollars to musicians in performance fees. Part of the success has been through creative events such as the recent symphony orchestra performances of the works of George Michael and Nirvana, as well as taking opportunity, taking the orchestra to communities in Western Australia who would never normally have been exposed to the orchestra. She's a former international level coxswain in the sport of rowing and still coaches crews occasionally today, particularly in the corporate challenge, I find. Bobby has won the Business News 40 Under 40 Award and is currently a Telstra Business Woman's Award finalist in 2017. Great accolades. Um, Bobby, welcome to the show. Hello. There you go. So, um, right, right from the start, I have a fairly unique name with the name Bryn, which is Welsh for hill or mountain. Where does Bobby come from? <laughs> I had to ask that before we get into anything else. Oh, we're not drunk. <laughs> we haven't had any wine, Bryn. Uh, Borby is made up. And God, how do I do this quickly? Forget the story. It's bourbon biscuits. If you're English, you know bourbon creams. Nothing special about them. I happened to have some at some point. Um, and there were an awful lot of Rachel's, which is my real name, right. which very few people know. So now all your listeners do. Um, <laughs> and there were a huge number of Rachel's in England. So we all got nicknames. So long story, Bourbon, Borby. There you go. There we go. All right. Really not very glamorous. It's not even bourbon whiskey, even though the spelling is B-O-U-R. You should have made something I, Honestly, oh no, God. people tell me that and I just haven't got the imagination. Sorry. There we go. Mm. Okay. So obviously... Um, Music is a the central part of, of what you do and, and probably who you are. Where where's where's that relationship with music come from and and how did it develop from at a young age? You know, I wish I wish you could kind of know because then if it was something you could translate and teach someone else. I, I don't even remember learning to read music. I just remember loving it and being good at it. If you clap me a rhythm, I could clap it back at the youngest age. Mum right. and dad are really musical and love music. So I'm sure that rubbed off on me. But I, to be honest, I'm quite blind as to how I got into it, why I fell in love with it. I was never in any doubt that music was going to be something I did. I didn't know if I was going to do it for a career. Right. But I always remember as a kid, just it was the one thing that came easily. I loved it. Right. singing, performing, dancing, you know, I'd snatch instruments off other kids at school because I knew that I could do it better than them. You know what I mean? It was oh, like, right. I just, any instrument. I so just you come from a musical loved. family. They're not musicians, but they are very musical. So mum will tinkle at the piano. Dad was a chorister. There was a lot of music in the house. Um, yeah. So I guess, did you ever go through that? 
that sort of archetypal period of, of your relationship with your parents where it was like, oh, I want to be a musician. And no, you bet you should go and be an accountant or a pharmacist or something. Absolutely not. No, Thank none of that. God. My parents were like, absolutely do what you love. And it's no coincidence, to be honest, all of us actually excel at the one thing that we love. Yes. You know, we might love it because, we, you know, we're good at it. We might love it because the teacher's amazing, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter what the reason is, but that's the thing you end up doing. So, yeah, there, there was no question. My parents have never once ever said, hmm, is that going to pay or is that money? They just literally went, if you want to do it, do it. Excellent. Yeah. And so you were playing multiple um instruments during school <laughs> I literally would grab anything so we all had to painfully play the recorder at yeah. school so that was my first instrument and that's I did learn to read music on the recorder but as I say I can't really remember anyone going there's an A there's a B anything like that so recorder at school definitely love percussion still actually one regret really should have been a drummer seriously Phil Collins eat your heart out I definitely could have done what <laughs> Right. I could see myself in his shoes, put it that way. There's a tiny bit of me that just one day might take up the drums. Right. Um, But no, I then learned the tenor horn, which looks like a pygmy tuba. And that was because a local village had a silver band. And no joke, if an old person got too old to play, their instrument went back in the locker. And whoever was the next young person to join the silver band got that instrument. So you don't get any choice. I joined the week that a tenor horn had been returned by some bloke that was too old to play. Right. And this thing looks like a pygmy tuba. Um, But I suffered real ear problems when I was a kid. And by blowing on this thing, I got really bad earache. Okay. So that then died a death. And then mum and dad had random instruments in the attic from a zither, which is a flat harp you play on a table that my sister and I always used to jam on, which I loved. Um, And just random things that we always used to try and guitar. But they had a violin. And this was something that was difficult and I wanted to master it. And my school taught violin. So I started out on violin. Found it super easy, as in I got so frustrated that we had to play pizzicato for the first six weeks. I'm like, why can't I use the bow? So, yeah. What was pizzicato? It's when you pluck the strings with your right. fingers. So they didn't let you hold a bow and use a bow on the string for at least your first six weeks, which drove me mad because I'd already done loads of practice at home and worked out how to use the bow and yes. wanted to get going on it. But, yeah, then got to about 15 and for some reason I just – it wasn't clicking with me. I just wasn't resonating with the violin anymore. And I don't know what it was. And I've never thought I'd give up an instrument, but I really just didn't want to practice anymore and hit a wall. And my incredible viola teacher, there are some defining people we all have in our lives. And Steve Broadbent was one of those for me. He was just a man of passion and music, infectious. And he was like, I'm not letting you you give up. You're actually a viola player. You just don't know it. Yes. And I was like, oh, really? What's, you know. And And the significant difference between the two. Complete personality change. It's literally, I mean, obviously a viola you hold and play like a violin. It's just significantly bigger and lower. So it's right. a bigger, you've got to be physically older to play it. Generally, you don't put a six-year-old on a viola ever. Right. It would always be a violin type thing. But completely different personality. So it's a little bit like rugby and AFL, that they've same shape ball, men on the team, all run around. Okay. Well, I'm being sexist. There's plenty of brilliant women's teams now, but you know what I mean? As in there, on yeah. one level, they look quite similar. On another, it's a totally different kind of human being that would play rugby versus AFL. Yes. So very different personality types. Violin and violas. We are so different. As soon as I got in the viola section, I'm like, oh, hello, I'm home. Right. This is who I am. Every other viola player I met was a right laugh. Loved sitting in the section. So is there a, is, is there a difference in personality types that, 
gravitate to different instruments? Oh, completely. Yeah. So generally you can pick an instrument. Like I'd say you're a trumpet player straight away. Is that right? Oh, completely. Is that right? So like as soon yeah. as you meet someone. I actually have a trumpet at home. Oh, um, there, you go. there you go. So for me, there is uh, a personality type generally that comes across. Mm. And like, trust me, brass players are very different from woodwind players. From? Woodwind players. Woodwind players. Yeah. Yes. Who are very different from string players. Right. And double bassists could not be more different from violinists. So, of course, there's individual personalities between each section. But generally, they, I mean, you know, like a, a rugby type playing guy versus an equestrian woman. Yes. You know. Yes. All right, I'll see your picture. Yeah. But you'll have to play on the same team. <laughs> but that's what the insane magic of a symphony orchestra is. Mm. That you've got unbelievably diverse people, personalities, Pipes scraping, hitting, plucking, and yet this sea of emotion mm. hits you when they collectively come together in this perfection of sound that will spontaneously bring you to tears. I just find that insane. I mean, who the hell invented that? Who the hell invented an orchestra with all these strange squeaking, clacking, whatever noises that can spontaneously make an entire audience burst into tears? I just... To me, that's just the most insane thing on the planet. It is. And we'll dive into that a bit, a bit more. Um, so at school, it, so there was a transition to the viola. Yes. And um, is that what you continued with through? Oh, yeah. The minute when you, when you're a viola player, you sit in the middle. So you're not the bass note that holds the, the whole ground and you're not the tune that dances all over the top okay. with incredible technique. You're the warmth that flows into the center of the sound and just makes everyone melt. And yes. I loved that role. I didn't need to be the showy one on the violin. So at this point, were you, you're not playing uh, pieces of music by yourself. You're now part of a group. Most of the time. I mean, clearly when you're a kid and you go through the grades, you're still having to practice on your own. But there was never a huge joy in me for that. Music was always collaborative. I had right. a, a friend, Louise, who just brilliant musician, gorgeous girl. Um, and we were really close at school. And one day she was like, I'm going to play that too. And I was like, no, it's really difficult. You'll never, you'll never be able to. <laughs> Within about four weeks of taking it up, she'd already equaled my ability. I was, I was like, damn it. She's really talented. Yeah. And we would buy simple duet books and go to Tintin railway station and play these painful grade one duets outside Tintin Steam Railway Station Cafe. And people would put money in our cases. We got real experts, by the way. If you want to know how to busk and make money out of it, come and see me. There are some brilliant tips you can use for okay. getting extra money. But this was back in the day when you'd get 50 pence pocket money a week. And Louise and I were regularly earning eight quid in an hour. So we're like, win. This is like when we're 13. And you just get on the bus to the local town and spend it. So Louise and I were like, this is awesome. Yes. So that was hugely like we'd spend hours after school, you know, voraciously eating our way through duet books of everything we could possibly lay our hands on. And then get tons of money at the weekend. So, you know, literally when people say, gosh, you know, such discipline required. I mean, yes, I did the hard yards. And I'm one of those people that really had to force myself to practice. And at the peak, you know, when you're doing six hours a day, that took a huge amount of discipline. Right, wow. Because that didn't come naturally to me. The practice? The practice. The music kind of came naturally. But the actual practice. The discipline behind it was really tough. So, I mean, I loved music and I just wanted to play, not practice. Right. So at what point were you getting to six hours a day? After I graduated from uni, I needed, I did a very academic degree. Right. When you read music at Oxford, you don't actually have to play an instrument. Okay. It's 
completely academic yeah so we are studying it's probably one of the most diverse degrees you can do at oxford because you're studying politics philosophy techniques oral composition all part of the one all part of the one degree so i mean the ability to write an essay on you know the political influences on shostakovich's fifth symphony is entirely different from here's the first four bars of a string quartet now write down the rest of the first movement as you think mozart would have written it for four parts i mean you try telling me how those two skills are similar and yet my friend that did history would literally be writing essays that was her entire degree so i'm like as a musician our skill set had to be insane and you didn't need to play an instrument so there was no real emphasis at all on being able to perform so whilst i played a huge amount at oxford oxford is one of the most vibrant musical universities i mean radiohead came out of oxford yes you know out of the 36 colleges i think there are can't remember the exact number we had something like 20 symphony orchestras most college so it seems that a lot of academic people play instruments too that music goes hand in hand with academia so it was just i mean i could play four different symphonies a week i don't know anywhere else in the world that you can get that kind of intense music experience so i went to london with a huge amount of repertoire under my belt huge amount of playing experience lots of string quartet and chamber music experience but never having really tested myself as a soloist to go am I the best I can be on my instrument? So I made the commitment, even though I didn't think I was going to be an orchestral player at that point or make it as a soloist, I wanted to get my playing as far as I possibly could because I knew there's no way at the age of 40 I'd go back and practice six hours a day. Yes. So I just knew I had to do it then. This pursuit of excellence at that point. Yeah. And there's, there's certainly something I've noticed in, in certain musicians that, um, yes, this very focused pursuit of excellence in um, in classical and this is you know i envy rock musicians because no one gives what? no one gives a shit if you play a wrong chord <laughs> it's just it's about the energy and the attitude and you yeah. can twang it and you can sing out a tune and i'm not saying people, people don't give it, people it. don't give a shit they just will forgive it and the musician doesn't feel that pressure they're not standing there with sweaty palms in the wings all the time they're just getting out there and just performing as much as playing right. in classical people don't even know your name i mean you walk out in front of an orchestra you don't say hello you don't speak i mean yes. this is the tradition of our world they are there to listen to how every single note is placed and phrased and whether it's hit hard or hit softly and how it blends into the next phrase how every phrase is so it's perfection yes. it is perfection not just yours but everybody correct and so you're in this magnifying glass that is just insane and that pressure is insane and so you have to you have to go everyone knows the music i'm playing we play cover songs you know classical musicians are the world's best cover musicians yeah you know all violinists play the same mozart violin concerto over and over it's like all singers singing the same nirvana song and so when an audience knows a piece that well and also has a view on how they think it should be played yes you're going out there to that (laughs) <laughs> level of audience you know it's it's quite exactly mind-blowing new, no and so because you're playing something that people know backwards it's your job to not just play it exquisitely but bring something to the table that no one has ever done before right and put yourself into it and the only way that you can really start putting yourself into a piece is to have such technical mastery that you don't even think it, you don't even think where your fingers are going anymore mm. that is just so there all you can think about is the f- fall and swell of the music and where it's carrying you and your personality into it. So you're into almost like a flow state. Oh, completely. And that's what I found when I started doing six hours practice a day. By the fourth hour, I'd lost track of whether I'd had lunch, how many hours I'd been practicing. It's it's wonderful. 
it's the first hour was always the toughest. Yes. Mm. And after that, you just enter this flow state. Yeah. You stop when your body aches too much. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And so you said you, from Oxford, you went to London. Yes. And that was to, you were saying to prove yourself. Yeah. I, I just knew that I wanted to take my playing as far as I could so that at any point, if someone said, do you want to come and jam a piano quintet? I could sit down and nail the viola part. Yeah. Well, and well. people would want to play with me. Right. Even if I didn't do it as a career. Awesome. Mm. Awesome. And then where did you, where did that take you? <laughs> I had a really tumultuous period between sort of uni violaing and everything else. Mm. There was a huge melting pot of stuff happening in my life at that point. So I'd left Oxford having taken up rowing, which I, for some reason, got addicted to. It was mm. a sport that Where got under that my skin. From? Do you know, I, my dad, um, who genuinely isn't the whole, you know, give a big speech when you leave for uni kind of guy. That's not what my <laughs> dad is at all. But he went to Oxford too. And I think he was incredibly proud yeah. That I was going there. Because it's a there. thing to go to Oxford. Yeah. Uh, many well, people get the opportunity well, to go. it's the number one university in the world. So yeah. it's quite cool to go. I'm sure there's a, there's a few people <laughs> who went to another university that would disagree with you. No, it's, it's been ranked this year. Oh, right. Officially ranked. Anyway, Oxford. anyway we, we that aside, we don't tell that. don't tell the light blues. Yeah, quite. Yeah. Um, and I will always remember my dad saying, I was terrified when I was there because I, you know, he never felt... Um, of that level and all that kind of stuff. And my dad just said, I just felt this pressure to study. So every night he's in the library studying. And that's literally half of what Oxford has to offer. I mean, you're there yeah. with princes, kings, politicians, neuroscientists, ast- you know, groundbreaking researchers, the best in the world. This university is a melting pot of Shakespearean plays, medieval music, you know, insane sports, original sports that aren't played anywhere else in the world anymore. Like Oxford is just this ridiculous, it's like living on a film set. And my dad just went, if there's one thing I can tell you is not make the mistake that I did, which is overstudy, go out there and try everything Oxford offers. So I wanted to do stuff at Oxford that when you go to a British comprehensive school in the middle of Whoop that literally offers two sports, netball or hockey. It's not yeah. like, do you want to try sailing? Do you want to, you know, it's not like the private schools with their insane opportunities. Yeah. I went to Oxford and went, this rowing thing, it's very Oxford. I mean, I watched the boat race yes. on television. I was like, I'm going to try this. And I made friends with some girls in week one who were all super fit. Bear in mind, I was not a super fit human being at all. Sport was not my thing at school. Music yes. was. Um, and they all joined up and put down that they would just do however many sessions it took. And I joined up going, because you had to say whether you wanted to train 12 times a week, eight times a week, right. or twice a week. So I put twice a week. And all my friends were in the 12 times a week category. And I was like, oh, that's crap. And after two weeks, I missed them because I was in this boat and I could see them going up and down the river already looking good. And my yes. boat was still looking like an octopus. So I'm rowing at this point. Yeah. So I went to talk to the coach and went, um, can I step up? Like, if there's any room in that crew, I'm prepared to train a bit more. I want to be with my friends. And he went, we've actually just had someone pull out. They've already, you know, hit the wall with yeah. <laughs> 12 sessions a week. So I found myself doing 12, you know, it's an insane number of sessions as a non-fit, non-athletic person just to be with my friends in this rowing crew. And yes. the rowing coach was cute, if all okay, yeah, be told. Yeah. <laughs> 
And my college was known for rowing. I was at Somerville, which was the last female college. Actually wrong. St. Hilda's was still female. But Somerville was literally just ending its female reign and boys were coming in next year. Mm. But we were what's called head of the river, which basically meant we were the best female rowing crew in Oxford. So to be part of that kind of insane spirit, I'd never experienced that in my life. You know, my school wasn't a competitive school. No one was ever pressured. There were no superstars. There were no rugby heroes, nothing. And to be at a college that has an insane pride in something it does well, you want to be part of that success. Mm. And um, so I loved it and I fell for the sport and there's nothing more beautiful than being on the water at six o'clock in the mist and the sun rising and that sense of rhythm in a boat. I found it very musical. I was going to say, there there, there seems to be parallels between the two in terms of the level of training, the pursuit of excellence, um, one one person performing well, but in unison with everybody else. And then you've mentioned the rhythm of the boat. It's funny you say that. My mum and dad always go, I have no idea where you get your drive from. Because, you know, my parents, I mean, they work bloody hard and they're absolutely gorgeous, but I was, it was never instilled to be the best. My parents weren't those parents that were yep. pushers at all. You know, they opened doors and left me opportunities. But yeah, yeah. I became really... I don't know if competitive is the right word, but certainly determined to be the best I could be or succeed anything I tried. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So then you said you've gone to London and there's a tumultuous time. Sorry. Yeah. So I got to London. Rowing was under my skin. So I was like, I really want to keep rowing and pursue this. But I was like, damn it. But I've enrolled in music college and I really want to pursue that. Yes. And I had to save money. So I'd basically so wait the Royal College yeah music. so I waited until I'd finished Oxford to audition for the Royal College because trying to audition for the Royal College and get my playing up to scratch to get in in the middle of trying to sit finals at Oxford when I yes. can't begin to tell you how academically intense Oxford is and how the volume of work you have to complete on top of rowing at you know 12 sessions a week so um <coughs> I'd got a sponsorship from a accounting firm for my boat club for Somerville because I became the boat club captain and the CEO of the company went, well, what are you going to do in London for a year while you're waiting for your course to start? Because I got in and I said, well, I'm, you know, I actually not coming to London. I'm just going to stay at home, practice and get a part time job to save up for when I do go to London next year. And he's like, no, 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 come to London, work for us. You just tell me what hours you want to work. We'll f- find you a place. Oh. So I'm like, it's an accounting firm. I've just done a music degree. What the hell do I know? But they shoved me in their marketing department. They had a brilliant business group called, um, arts and heritage applying for lottery grants on behalf of clients so i ended up working for an accounting firm rowing solidly and practicing solidly then i got to music college so overlay full-time music college with a a rowing career that was taking off so in 97 which i always go is my really strange year i basically broke through because i'd given up rowing because my hands got too blistered yes so my only way of staying in the sport was to take up coxing so I then had to take up long distance running to lose 20 kilos to become a stick. Oh, right. To be light to be enough to cost. Yeah. And get my hands back in shape so I could physically play well enough to practice for six hours a day oh, without yeah, all my calluses yeah. cracking. So in 97, I suddenly found that I'd actually done really well at coxing and I loved it and ended up rowing in some amazing boats. And I ended up trying out for the British Olympic team for the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Right. So I'm training at insane hours and driving out to Henley from London, which is an hour and a half commute, getting back by 11am, getting to the accounting firm, doing three to four hours work at 4pm, starting practice till 10 o'clock at night and repeat. So I had this- Seven days a week. Yeah. So I had this ridiculous routine. And then at music college, 
There was a poster on the wall saying wanted two violins, viola, cello, ring Rob. And I'd already got a string quartet that was playing on top of the pops and stuff like this because I'd had a string quartet at Oxford and I organised concerts and lunchtimes recitals for us. So it wasn't a stress for me to organise a concert. And I, you know, rang Rob and the next thing I know I'm auditioning. It looked like Australian Idol or something like that, but ended up auditioning for this girl band and got in. So then I end up in a girl band recording at Abbey Road Studios and getting wow. a record deal at the same time as trying to make the Olympics. And I'm like, what is this? This little girl from Gloucestershire who literally isn't particularly amazing at anything. Like I'm a good viola player and I was a good coxswain, but I'm by, you know, there's infinitely more incredible, but I just went far out hard work, literally work, 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 hard work. work, work actually works i mean it's that's it literally in my book it's that simple i really you know i would love to just be a gifted human i'm not i have to work at everything would you really? I do. well it'd be nice to not have to do six hours practice <laughs> a day and be brilliant you know or have to you know but you know <clears throat> we'll have to be naturally skinny so i could just cox yeah. not have to bloody have to run every day for an hour as well on top of everything else i was doing and i look back on that and think bloody hell i was nuts you know i just i'd never do that now i'd never be starving myself and running and coxing and practicing and I would never do that again. I'd never put myself through that. Yes. Mm. So now you're in this band. Yes. On top of everything else. Uh, so essentially and this is Bond? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that started to grow. It was really intermittent, you know. I it was really eye opening. As you know, no one kind of can tell you what a band is like until you're in one. And ours, I think every band is unique as to how they start, how their career takes off, mm. how they get together. Are you playing your own music or are you being handed stuff or are you playing classical stuff? What What were you playing? At this point? Uh, it's funny because everyone said, you know, it was classical crossover. <clears throat> we're playing contemporary music. The only thing that makes us classical is the fact we've got a violin in our hand. Right. So if I play a song by Nirvana, does that make me classical? I don't think so. Right. So I would contest that it was a classical band. So, um, yeah, the band slowly grew um, and we never really knew what was going on. In what way? As in the guy who put us together, who's I have a lot of respect for. I mean, he was, you know, in my mind, the grandfather of the music industry in the UK. You know, I th- he worked with so many major artists and promoted them. And I think in some ways Bond was potentially a retirement project for him. You know, he was having some fun putting something who, together. His so name is called Mel Bush. Right. Yeah, and he's not well known at all. Like if you Google him, you can't really find him. And yet he's been so instrumental. Or put it this way, that's, that's what he told us. And yes. I, I believe him. You know, he was a really genuine human and extremely wise and wanted to put a, a music project together of uh, girls. He'd had huge success with a crossover violinist called Vanessa May. Right. Who was an Asian, brilliant, phenomenal player who played electric violin and Mel created that, said, well, you know, get rid of the wooden one, play the electric one and let's play produced more contemporary tracks. And Vanessa took off and sold millions. And obviously girl bands were the thing of the 90s, the All Saints, the Spice Girls, Atomic Kitten. Atomic Kitten actually did their showcase to the record labels in the next door room to us. I clearly remember that day because their manager was late back from lunch. The girls were locked out of their studio and the record labels were there going, well, if we don't get into the studio and you sing for us, then we're just going home and your record deal's over. You know, you're not going to get a deal. And these girls were in tears. Like it was horrible. I'll I'll remember that just going, I really feel for them. that Their manager's just, I don't know what had happened to him, 
but lo and behold atomic kitten became huge so they obviously yeah. managed to their manager obviously did turn up but yeah so look bond sorry i keep digressing but bond um it grew and became more frequent and we literally this wasn't even emails and Mel wasn't an email and kind of guy. So we just get envelopes going, hi girls, here's some music. Please turn up at Whitfield studios next week at 2 PM. So we, we had to always drop stuff. It was literally, doesn't matter what you've got on that day at 2 PM, you are at Whitfield studios, you know? So we had to put our whole lives on hold and, you know, it was a big speculative thing. I was convinced it was going to work. I mean, I trusted Mel. I'm like smart, savvy man, been in the industry for years, thought the concept was brilliant. So, yeah, by the end of sort of music college, I didn't even need to think about a career. I'd already got a really good part-time job for an accounting firm that was secure and I could do whatever hours I wanted, put my suit on, go to the city. Mm-hmm. And then at night I'd be in recording studios, you know, and we um, worked with, what was his name? Fines, Ralph and Joseph Fines, the actors. Right. Their brother, Magnus, that's him. Brilliant, creative, fun, crazy. Um, yeah, he was our producer and he just worked with the old saints as well. So we got to work with some amazing people, but we, we had very little choice, but to be fair, we wouldn't really have known what to do. You know, I mean, I think we could all have maybe brought some music to the table, but it was Mel's vision Yes, and he, you know, chose the producers in the studio and what we were going to do and when we were going to do it. And so I, I had some crazy experiences yes. with that group. I mean, it was mind blowing. But I did begin to ask some questions like, I just don't understand who pays for this. I couldn't quite understand who paid for Whitfield Studios. And we turned up at Abbey Road Studios to record a demo. And the Royal Philharmonic was sitting in Abbey Road Studio One. I was like, ah, oh, backing band. Nice. Good. There's my teacher. Brilliant. Excellent. My teacher's in my backing band. They were. But I began thinking, you know, who pays for this? You know, who pays for this? And I was like, I just don't know how this machine works. So I started asking Mel, the manager, if um, I could learn more. I was like, I'm curious. I really want to know what this takes. So I began going to meetings and going to the record label with him and just observing and listening. And it was fascinating. This thing called the recording industry, artists are 1%, publicists, administrators, lawyers, accountants, tour managers, venues, unit distribution channels, everything is 99%. Yeah. And half the time they kept going on oh, those things that the girl play, girls play. And I was like, yeah, they're violins, viola, and a cello. <laughs> like, yeah. So literally. So, yeah. So yeah, it was fascinating for me. I learned a huge amount about that. So the that's co- how the music industry works today. Still same thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It's so, a business industry that's selling a product. Yes. It's a hardcore commercial industry. This is big and as bold and as cutthroat. As the mining industry. Yeah. Right. It's competitive. It's commercial. It's full of incredible, talented, ambitious, smart, innovative people. But not necessarily the musicians. And then musicians come into that picture (laughs) at some point. Yeah. Right. Mm. Mm. So Bond, if I'm right, didn't end up finishing that well. Not for me. It did for the, I mean, the, the girls went on to do hugely well. Yeah. So I learned a very important life lesson. And what was that? Uh, naively, I thought I was helping by going to all these meetings and finding out all this stuff and coming, reporting back just, and you know, I have a personality that, um, 
I'm just a bit too over-enthusiastic and speak before I think. So, you know, I definitely got the feeling I'd embarrassed the girls on a few occasions in front of record labels going, oh, I don't even know who Take That is. And I could see the other girls in the band were like, there Bobby goes again, you know. Yeah. But also I would come back from, you know, meetings with Mel, just go, oh my God, it's really interesting. This is what they want us to wear. And I could, you know, and I was so bloody naive and I'm just, I'm a lot better now at reading people. Um, and I think if I'd been able to read the girls back then and, you know, they, they would be saying things like, well, why didn't you tell him that we don't want to wear short skirts? Right. And I'd be like, it didn't even enter my head that we had a choice. I mean, this machine is running us. We're just little us. We just do what we're told. Whereas I think they thought that um, I could have done more and we could have some influence and that actually I was making matters worse by attending meetings oh, and, and, and consenting potentially speaking on behalf of them, which I never <clears throat> did. I mean, the whole time I just listened because I was just like, these guys are never going to listen to me anyway. Right. And I don't know what's right and wrong. I trust them that they know what's going to succeed. Yeah. So one horrible day came home and um, got to the girls and had a rehearsal and just went, Oh, by the way, you know, this particular song and I could remember the song and it didn't appear on the first album. So I'm actually really proud of them. They did get their way. They did actually probably make a stand. Yeah. At least I'm pretty certain that song that they were not wanting on the, on the album didn't appear, but I just remember this huge blow up of going, you know, you control us and you tell us what to do and you're always telling them what we don't want. And it's just the wrong vibe. And yeah, it was mortifying. So one day I'm in the band and the next day I'm not. And two and a half years have gone, you know, and we haven't been paid for any of it. Right. And I'd put in so much effort. You know, in my mind, I was like... You must have been well hurt. When the girls particularly, because, you know, they were young and cool. I was not cool. You know, I I absolutely, I can, you know, I absolutely recognize that now and recognize that they absolutely were. And uh, I'm just like, you know, they were actually right. The vibe... I wasn't like them. I was too prim and proper in English village. And whereas they were quite worldly and savvy and just down to earth in a different way, um, you know, which I completely understand. But they were the ones that were like, oh my God, some of these songs are embarrassing, you know, or some of these songs we just don't want to play and we don't want to look like this and we don't want to. And I was the one that kept saying, we have to stick at this because my whole view was that the Spice Girls had, you know, sung, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. And I'm sure they didn't really want to do that either. And you can tell from the way that each one of the Spice Girls careers went after the Spice Girls, that that music wasn't the music that was at the heart. They just did what it took to get to somewhere where they then had enough fame and power and influence to go and forge their own careers in the type of music they wanted to do. So I just kept going, we just knowing, and I could tell how hard it was to break. Like, you know, the the guy who was head of Universal Records in a meeting, his name was Bill. I really liked him. And he was always super honest and took me under his wing. And, you know, he would say, well, look, one in 50 bands make it. But the success of that one has to cover the wasted costs of the other 49. We've spent money on the other 49 also trying to make it work. Right. So that one not doesn't have to be successful. It has to be mega successful. And I was saying, yeah, and I, yeah. All the investment of all the. Correct. Correct. Like anything, cash cow with a company, you know, and they're looking for the cash cow. And I was like, if we start kicking up a stink now going, oh, we don't want to play this and we're just going to get booted out. No one's going to give a shit about little whingy girls putting their foot down. That was what I was thinking. Right. I was like, we just need to go with this. They all think we're going to be big. They've all got a vision. They're all on the same page. They want to do this. So my view was always just get carried by it. And I understand that made the other girls now looking back and Mm. what happened in that breakdown meeting was they were so uncomfortable with that, which of course they don't want to be seen in front of all their mates and the people that they admire thinking those girls are just cheese 
you know what I mean? Yes. Or not cool. So looking back, I can, can see that. But also, I mean, just a huge lesson. Do not be in the band and in the management team. You know what I mean? Don't be on the footy field and have a door in the management office. You right. know, you, you you just can't do that. If you're a team, you're equal and no one knows more than anyone and you all equally represent yourself to management. And right. so I find it really hard to play in the orchestra now, even though I would die to play in this beautiful, amazing thing called Perth Symphony Orchestra. Yes. I find it really hard to do that. I feel really conscious and guilty and bad for the other musicians. I don't know if they look at me going, you're spying and, you know, all those Bond memories come back going, don't do it. Don't be in the orchestra and guided. How long did it take you to get over that experience? Oh, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, you haven't. Because when in life you put your heart and soul into something and I did it with, there was no malicious intent ever. Do you know what I mean? Like there was not one ounce of me that wanted to do anything that would hurt those other members or compromise them. I just wanted us like everything else. I wanted it to work. You just wanted to trust in the process. Yeah. And go with the process. Yeah. And, and I just could understand see. the process. Mm-hmm. So to kind of be knocked sideways and rejected and have until then, everything I'd tried had worked. If I run my ass off, I get really slim and cocks really every day and listen to every coach and spend time in the dinghies with Olympic coaches. And then I'll make the Olympics. If I practice my viola really hard, if I turn up to every rehearsal, if I, whatever, if I'll study super hard, I'll get to Oxford and all of these things I could make happen. Yes. And then here's this one thing. You're doing the same thing. That I'm like, I'm going to just try really hard and I just really want this to work. And I just realized you can't, you can't, there are things outside your control Mm. and that's still devastating. It's life. It was a really, really good life lesson. Yes. Trust me. You know, I've learned to accept failure now, but I was so wounded by that. I mean, I literally felt sick for two years. I mean, and then the tragic thing was I also at that time, because I'd been putting in so much time to the band as well, hadn't been pushing the coxing. I hadn't been able to go to all the weight sessions. And as a coxswain, the team expects you to be there like yeah. they are for everything, even though you're only needed on the water. I physically didn't need muscles to cox. Yeah. But as a coxswain, you're one of the team. You're supposed to go to every training session. But of course, I'd been skiving off weights and skiving off this. So I'd started to lose my foothold, but I realized something had to give and music was always my go-to core passion. So if if anything, the coxing or the music, that was going to go. So I'd started letting that go and then to lose Bond as well. And I, I just literally, I was like, all I have is 10 hours a week at an accounting firm, which is not what I want to do. No. So I was just left with this huge, devastating hole of having spent years of working towards something. I didn't even really know what, but I just worked hard at everything I did to be left with this huge freaking hole and going, I can't stay in London. I can't watch the girls go on to be the success I know they're going to be, knowing that often when they'd wanted to pull the pin or they hadn't wanted to do something, I'd been the one going, we've got to do this. We've got to turn up and constantly saying to Mel, we're super keen and keeping us front of mind with Mel because he had yeah. four or five projects that he was working on and he could have pushed any one of them for the record deal. Because I was like, so Mel, are we, are we going to get a deal? Are we going to, you know, so I felt I'd been so instrumental. That was how I felt. I don't know yes. if that's how it really was, but that's how I felt. I'd put that same amount of commitment and dedication to making that success. And then I had nothing. It was just absolutely devastating. You learned about that time you came here to Australia. Correct. So I had a boyfriend who was from Australia. I'm like, we just need to go. We just need to run away away and get away from London. I can't bear to see their picture on every billboard. And I knew how much Mel was going to be able to get them in the public eye, which he did. Yeah. So I ran away to Australia and, you know. Did you come here? Yeah. yeah, To Western Australia? Yeah, to Perth. Because that's where 
my boyfriend at the time was from. Right. So I came here and what was just mortifying was it'd been a good, I mean, I had been asked to leave the band Christmas 99 and I moved here in October 2000, September, just after the Olympics. So it took nine, 10 months. Yeah. And Bond still hadn't launched. We'd recorded the album. You know, I knew they were flying off to Brazil or something, which was where we'd planned to do the first video. So I missed out on all of that fun of mm. recording videos and stuff. I just did the slog in the studio. Um, and I knew they still hadn't launched. But by the time I got here, I was like, oh, it's 10 months down the line. You know, this is, I can start to heal now. I've come to a beautiful city where no one knows me. Mm. No one knows my history. No one knows anything. I can pretend I'm anything. This yes. was a very tempting opportunity. Yeah. And I walked into Carousel Shopping Center and I've never felt like being shot. I think I know what it feels like to be shot because I felt like this gunshot hit me in the chest uh, that almost made me vomit and double over. I mean, I couldn't breathe. And that was? Because Bond was playing it throughout the shopping centre. Their record had launched in Australia before I, I even got here. I was like, I don't believe this. I don't believe I'm going to have to listen to the and, and it's me playing on the record. And long story how legal stuff works, but I waived any rights. And I, 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 you know, who knows, someone might listen to this podcast and I'll get short because I think there was some kind of confidential or still silence clause. But I was like, I can't not say that I was in this band. I can't just wipe out two and a half years of my life. Yes. And they're my songs. I am playing on those songs and I could hear yeah. myself playing on those songs. Oh. So I was just like, oh my God, there I am. Yes. I practiced that for several months every day that it was just so unbelievable. Yeah. So it haunted me. I'd come halfway around the world to start a new life and it was still there. <laughs> so right. pretty shit. Pretty yes, shit. I can only begin to imagine. Yeah. So then you started working in a, in a more corporate environment. Is that correct? Do you know, I, I still wanted to play, but I was like, right, the music industry is business. And there were some amazing things that happened. I don't regret a day in Bond. Like it was such an incredible experience mm. to have tried that. But I just went, if I don't talk business, I'm never going to, I'm always going to get screwed. I'm always going to be the person who just turns up and plays for a hundred bucks. So I was like, I have to understand the machine. I need to better understand business. Right. And of course I'd learned a little bit at the accounting firm. I began to see how powerful it could be if you understood numbers. Yeah. So, and I thought, I don't want ever anyone to present me with a record deal again and go, you're going to make X number of thousand dollars and me go, oh my God, so exciting sign here. Don't read sign. Yes. That sounds like a lot of money. I'm going to be famous sign. As opposed to going, well, why only that much? And why does that clause say that we're limited on that? And duh, duh, duh. And I was like, no, I need to totally review how I view my career. And I just didn't want it to happen to anybody else. Right. I wanted other musicians to go, right, this is some of the stuff I might need to know if I'm going to make it. So I thought I can't possibly start preaching to other musicians about anything or helping them if I don't know my stuff. So I threw myself into the corporate world and thought, I'm just going to learn business. Don't care how. Right. Don't care what. Were you still playing at this point? Yeah. So I put a group together here and that started my relationship with Jessica, who is now like a sister to me. She's one of the women I admire most in the world and she's the chief conductor of the Perth Symphony Orchestra and is a global phenomenon. Right. But back then in 2000, she was a violinist and I was a viola player and she was a very young spring chicken. And my first ever string quartet gig here was with her. So that started our journey where we met and we had such a music connection. She, every 
atom of that woman's being is music. She feels right. it, lives it, breathes it. She's just got an insane sense of musicality. So when she plays, I want to dance. I want to smile. I want to, she has that ability to infect. Yes. So yeah, so I carried on playing, but just on the side. On the side. But we just. So not six hours a No. And that was a thing. Like that probably <clears throat> ended my practicing. I've practiced for, if I've been booked to play in a symphony, I want to make sure I turn up and play the notes. I don't want to be the player that's in the middle of the section fluffing it. So I, I work really hard if someone books me for something. Yeah. I sort of have pride in turning up playing it. But um, no, Jess and I, Jess was fascinated at this whole Bond thing because obviously she knew who Bond was because they were here in Australia. Yeah. And she was like, I want to do this. Like you and I should do something. We should do something where we actually bring in violence to the fore. And Jess is a performer. She's not just a player. I think there's a distinct difference between people who play music right. and people who perform. Right. So What's the difference? there's just a whole dimension to it that isn't just that perfection playing. It's the whole charisma. So right. a Kurt Cobain who can't even sing in tune and yet people want to see him perform. Yeah. So there's so much more to it. It's not just about, does he have a great voice? Can Jess play the violin? It's like, she's captivating on stage. Right. So we both wanted an opportunity to get up out of our chairs and kick our music stands out of the way and still entertain people really with both how we moved, not just by how we played. So we put a band together called Bojem, which was originally called Savannah, but then we discovered how trademark and copyright law works, not in our favour. So that's another story. But Bojem is B-O for Borby, J-E for Jessica, and M-E for Emma, who was our yeah. cellist. And the three of us put Bojem together. We did some, um, we supported Simply Red at the mm. Lewin concert. We played on ground at Subiaco Oval in the Western Forces first rugby season to 45,000 people. We flew to Singapore. Yeah, we did some awesome things, but all the while I had a full on corporate career, full-time job. And what were you doing? <laughs> I ended up, company, I ended it? up as a head of business development for a global consulting engineering firm. That's at the time, it's now a transportation focus, but specialized in water and wastewater. So I would go to sludge farms and find, oh. find out fascinating things like, uh, Cows were becoming, now what is it? Cows were becoming infertile or something like that because they're eating grass that's had human sludge put on it. And because humans take the contraceptive pill and it's in their human waste, when it gets spread on the fields and the grass grows, the cows then eat that and it was impacting cow's fertility. I was like, wow. Wow. I am just amazing that I'm learning this. Isn't, isn't, isn't life vivid? <laughs> I was just like... <laughs> the potential rock, rock star. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Bond girls were touring the world and like that. I was seeing pictures of them with Pierce Brosnan and I'm learning about human excrement and how it... <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So I was like, wow, how far have I come? But I actually, I think engineers are remarkable people. I learned a huge amount in terms of thinking in a much more processed way and logical and order and all this kind of stuff that my brain wouldn't normally do and yes. learning to work with them and the amazing stuff that engineering does in the world was still exciting for me but I really value every company that gave me a job between 2000 and 2007 which was my corporate bit Yes. Um, because I, I learned so much and I came out of there with an MBA and business skills and having worked on major deals and understanding far more about this thing called the corporate world. Right. So was there a end in mind to this period or did you just get to a point of saying enough's enough? No, always wanted to go back to music and actually just went, oh my goodness me, I've spent far too long away from music. Yeah. When did that realisation come? <laughs> um, 
basically my partner who'd become my husband and I, we broke up in Sydney. So we'd moved to Sydney for his job and I was flying back here to play with Bojem whilst heading up business development for this firm based in Sydney, but flying to Brisbane and Melbourne and back to Perth and all over. So when that relationship ended, that was a watershed moment going, right, so it's just me, me and me. And (laughs) I I was like, if I'm going to take a hit financially and dump my six-figure salary and start a company and live on fresh air until I work out how I'm going to make it work, now is the time. Because all I had to support was me and I was quite prepared to eat baked beans out of a tin every night if that's what it took. So I didn't feel, I would have felt so, uh, not guilty, but, you know, my ex and I were equal partners. You know, we contribute to the mortgage, we contribute to everything. So if I'd not been able to do that, that would have been too indulgent in my mind. Right. To actually just go, actually, babe, do you mind if I just give up my job and you pay for everything and I'm just going to experiment with a music career? Whereas when I was on my own, nothing to lose, no one else to upset, no one else so to let only down. after the relationship breakup Correct. Decide, that's when I was going. And I knew anyway, I was getting really disillusioned. With the corporate career. Yeah. Not because of their fault at all. As I say, everyone I met was hugely inspiring. But my friend Pauline, who's a filmmaker in Sydney, she gave me these two books. One was orange and one was green. One had B on the cover and one had do on the cover. And, you know, the do one was like, do you sit at home and have a list of things to do and think, bugger, I'll just watch TV and I'll do this tomorrow. And I'm like, no, if I have a list of things to do, I'm up doing it. You know, like I didn't have an issue with doing, but I had a real issue with being. It was like, do you ever just sit there and reflect on what you've done? And, and, and I was like, no, never. I'm too busy doing to think about it. Yes. And it was quite a profound moment for me going, actually, things could be quite different if I thought through them more. Right. A lot. If she's just sat still. Sat and- still. And one of the things in the B book, and I've no idea who wrote them or where to find them. I just remember one was bright orange and one was bright green. If anyone knows where, please let me know. Um, but the thing about the B book was it said, if someone was to write something on your tombstone right now, would you be proud of it? So Borby Webster was a great business development manager for an engineering firm. And she... And I was like, yeah, no, what does that mean? What what difference have I actually made? Right. And I thought, I want someone to write on my headstone. She made a difference in people's lives or she left a legacy or she influenced people or she helped people. Something that wasn't just about me doing a good job and earning some yes. money. So I was like, right, I gotta, I've got to rewrite my tombstone. So my B book was the one that influenced me. Right. And I thought I'm going to be different. I'm going to be meaningful and I'm going to start spending more time thinking what I can really offer. Because it is fascinating that, um, it's very easy to be caught up in a, in a career that you, you start off with, um, just thinking, about, well, I'll, I'll just do this for a while or I'll just do this for a reason to get this bit of knowledge. But then, you do well at it and then you get rewarded for it. And then the, you start to, you know, rewarded financially and then you get more money. And then, so you take on more liabilities and then, mm-hmm. then you get yourself trapped in it quite quickly. And after a while you find yourself busy, 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 busy. And and I find it interesting now that, you know, people just going on like a two week holiday, come back and they're almost distraught yeah. because um, it's almost like um, business is one of the most overlooked drugs Absolutely. Addictive drugs. Oh, it's, yeah. And I still have that problem. I still have that problem. You still have your business, business addiction. I have to work 
every day to just let myself be and think, and I'm still not doing it. I still will pick up the phone to get something over and done with because it's unpleasant or because I'm excited and I don't think that's, it's, that's one of the things I'll take to my grave that will right. stop and think. Right. <laughs> so we've, um, so we've left the corporate career. Mm-hmm. So that in the end didn't end up being as difficult as you thought it would be. No, it was total freedom. It was like the wind in my hair. It was yep. the best thing the minute I left. Did you have a plan? Uh, I'm risk averse. So before I left the company, I found a firm that was willing to let me consult to them as a consultant two days a week. Yep. So I knew I'd got two days salary coming in that would cover my rent and my food. That, is that hit back here? In yeah, Perth? I had to come back to Perth. I love Western Australia and Western Australians. Um, one, it still feels really new. So there's so many things that I took for granted in London. Of course, there's going to be a boys choir. Of course, there's going to be a Motown band. Of course, there's going to be four acapella things that you could join. Of course, there's going to be X, Y. There's going to be small art gallery, big art gallery, cool, trendy art gallery, art gallery just for plastic objects. None of that's here in Perth yet. There are so many things that people could create to fill a space right. that would be so exciting for people. So I was just, I've got so many options musically. You know, we had, I absolutely adore Wazo. I mean, a magnificent symphony orchestra, WA Opera, do the most opulent world-class productions. You know, we've got these incredible companies, but all the little ones and all the other things around them that I was used to in London, yes. bite-sized things that you could go to at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, tiny pop-up theatres in black boxes, you know, crazy barbershop groups singing Nirvana arrangements. None of that was here. And to a certain extent, it still isn't. So I just saw this, I saw Western Australia as a clean slate for experimenting. Ah. Um, Life here is easy because if things go to shit in London, you can guarantee that when you've just received the shittest news, which is what happened at this rehearsal when Bond asked me to leave and said, we don't want you in the group anymore, was the trains were cancelled and I had no money for a taxi and I'm waiting for a bus in the rain. I'm like, yeah, this is bloody typical. Everything <laughs> that is bad has just got 10 times worse. Here in Perth, you're like, mm, everything's crap. But you know what? The sun's shining. Ocean's blue. Go for a dip in the ocean. <laughs> you know, spot, spot a dolphin. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I am like, we are the most blessed, fortunate, privileged people in the world. We live in a city where there's so few threats where there's open spaces, where the beach is accessible for everyone and there's free parking. Seriously, go Cottesloe. I mean, you know, if you go to LA, there's no way you're parking on the beach for free. I mean, come on. This is as good as life gets. And I was like, I've got space to try anything here. No one's going to give a toss if I fail. The friends that I had here were just gorgeous and supportive. You know, Jessica was like, Bobby, you're going to be able to do anything you want to do. So that was it. I was like, why would I go back to London where it's going to be hard? Everyone's already doing it. So I need to do it 10 times better or be 10 times more creative to find something new and different yes. and interesting. And I could see that there was an opportunity to create another orchestra here. There are so many talented musicians here that want to work far more in an orchestra, but there wasn't anything, you know, they, they, they can't do full-time Wazo or they don't want to. And, you know, Wazo's already got a complement of amazing musicians. Yes. But I saw, well, there's a million places that we could play, a million people that don't currently have access. And I mean a million. Like there are a million Western Australians who would find it difficult to get to the concert hall. You know, so despite the fact Wazo do amazing outreach programs and all the rest of it, they can't physically get to two million people. Yes. You know, that's just – and I was like, well, then we can do something that will. 
So saw a market opportunity, found a place I wanted to live while doing it. So yeah, it was, it was a no brainer to come back here and not go back to London, even though I have no family here. So straight right from the get go, it was let's create a symphony orchestra. Absolutely. I always knew in the back of my mind, this is what I have to do. And I was like, how do I do this? And a few. So how do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Seriously, Jess and Wendy, Wendy's our horn player. Who's just an extremely inspiring woman herself. She's like, Bob's got to do this, you know, come on, you can do this. You know, she, she just really um, supports people. And we were in a pub and I was like, we need to do this. And she's like, well, just do it. Just call it Perth Symphony. And I was like, why? And she goes, well, there's Sydney Symphony, Melbourne Symphony. Everyone thinks there's a Perth Symphony. So we might as well just be Perth Symphony. I was like, Wendy, spot on. Everyone's just going to think that we're established anyway, you know, up and running. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was literally also, I'd been phoning people because I knew enough musicians to pull an orchestra together. <clears> so <throat> I'd been phoning people that might book an orchestra. So the Lewin Estate concert, Simone... Um, who basically is the managing director of Lewin Estate. And they have huge concerts and have had an orchestra down there. In fact, the first Lewin concert was an orchestra concert. And I remember sort of ringing and she's like, so what's, so you have an orchestra? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can pull one together for you. She's like, mm, okay, that sounds good. Uh, but I could tell there was no real motivation. And yet as soon as I went, I run an orchestra, it's called Per Symphony. Everyone wanted to book it. It just became real. It became a thing. It had a name. You grew a life as And um, And this is what I mean about WA. People really want to give you a go. They're like, come on, you can do this. Give it a go. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm going to give it a go. You know, that kind of attitude of shrug your shoulders, can only fail. And I love that about Australia. And a friend of mine, Bev, um, who's a ridiculously inspiring human being, she is a friend of mine from my MBA. We were at the university club one day and Gary Ellis, who's a – you know, fantastic guy was like, we've got a hundred years of UWA coming up and the university club want to do a big something to kind of commemorate that a hundred years. And Bev's like, oh, Bobby will do an orchestra for you. Like when you do a big orchestra concert, centenary concert, massive symphony orchestra out in the oval outside UWA. I was like, yeah, I can do that for you. And he was like, so you can do an orchestra. I was like, yeah. And at that point I went away and said to Wendy and Jess, I think we might be able to do an orchestra. And that's when Wendy said, well, just call it per symphony. Just do it. And as soon as I went back to Gary going, we can do this. We've got the musicians. We've got the conductor. Jesse you had the brilliant. musicians. Yeah. I'd been building a database for. Right. It took three <clears> years. And I'd ring clarinetists going, so what's the difference between a high clarinet and a, or a high horn and a low horn or a, a clarinet and a A flat clarinet and an E flat? Like, cause I, just cause you sit in orchestras for years and years doesn't mean you understand people from yeah. another section. It's, just it's, those it's literally like if you work in HR and you know that there's a team down there that do marketing, but you don't yeah. quite know no. what they do. Yes. And actually what do the guys in sales actually do all day, every day? Like we know they're out on the road selling, but you don't actually know other people's jobs. No different in an orchestra. The clarinets might be sitting behind you playing and you can see they're picking up different instruments from time to time, but you don't know what they are or what that means or who can play them. So I had to do all that research and build this database of going, right, these people play high horn or low horn or bumper horn or principal horn. Or Right. So I had to learn all that. And yes. uh, it took that long. We ended, I ended up with like more than 250 people on the database. And I was like, holy moly, Western Australia has this many musicians capable of playing at a professional standard. Where did you find them? Just... Literally, they might have been someone who'd been in Wazo and then gone on maternity leave and not gone back or musicians who'd come from here. You know, a lot of them had done their stint. There used to be an orchestra in Perth called the Perth Arts Orchestra. 
which was the opera and ballet orchestra. So we did have two <clears throat> and it became too expensive to run two because they were both fully mm. funded. So a lot of people had auditioned and flown around from Australia to come and play in that orchestra, just like they do with Wazo, a West Australian symphony. So um, there were a lot of musicians that were still here from then, had built a life here, lost their job as orchestral players, but were teaching and doing all the freelance stuff. So I was like, well, we just need to bring them all together now and make that happen. So, yeah, so Gary at the university club, we had a person who was willing to hire us. I had to do a hell of a lot of work. I was like, you know, where's the, where are we going to get the timpani from? And, you know, like, what do we need to actually do this? So it was a huge learning curve. I mean, you know, the closest I'd come to running an orchestra was sitting in the viola seat. And let me tell you, credit to all admin teams of all orchestras around the world. There's so much more to it. The library side is fascinating. That's trying to find 22 pieces of music, know the publisher that's got them, find the orchestration to make sure that you've booked the right players to be able to play those pieces. 22 pieces arrive, 76 separate parts. Some of them we have to print off, which could be five separate pieces of paper. And woe betide you if you stick the third bassoon part to the second clarinet part, you know, like... Yeah, that's not cool. It's ridiculous. I mean, you should have seen my house. <clears throat> there was not a bare piece of floor because the entire folders and the entire pieces of music. And when they come back, if you send an incomplete... <clears throat> set of parts back to the publisher, you get huge fines. So you've got to it, just count them all back in and you have to know if the piccolo part's missing from piece number 18. I mean, it was so laborious and so enormous and it still is. Right. So, you know, anyone who wants to become a music librarian, you are unbelievably brilliant and please let me know because it's one of the biggest jobs. Yes. Yeah, it's insane. So you have this database of people. Mm -hmm. You have this first booking. Mm -hmm. How do you convert potential into actuality well we i mean seeing the orchestra come together on stage it was almost spontaneous in tears kind of moment when we'd literally booked all these musicians to come together and called them per symphony orchestra and were rehearsing for this centenary concert at the university club and how many weeks of rehearsal oh not many at all i mean this is the reality of professional playing you get two rehearsals <clears throat> and you're on oh well, yes. as a group yes wow so you do a huge amount of work on and the orchestra own. come together at the end so all of the planning, all of the music, all of the soloists, all of the behind the scenes stuff, stage plots, how many chairs we need, booking trucks, harp transport, you know, not harp transportation, piano transportation, stage size, you know, how many pegs hold down the stage, what's the orientation of the stage, hours of planning goes into every performance and then the orchestra turn up and sit there and do their thing magically. And I now know I've done my job well if the orchestra literally can turn up and play. Right. In great conditions, they can see properly, they can hear properly. And look, I don't always get it right because we break the rules as an orchestra. We play in places and spaces you'd never normally find us. It is never a straightforward, nice concert hall with a beautiful acoustic and perfect air conditioning and perfect temperature. So let me get this straight. You, you hire these guys, they turn up and they practice, what, twice? Yeah. But they are that trained yeah. that they just... They, they've got approximately 2 million hours practice <clears throat> between them. So, yes, they've all done what I did, the six hours a day for X number of years. And plenty yeah. of them still practice at that level. So if I said to you, like you started the interview reading, you know, my my blurb, which yes. is hilarious. Hearing someone read something about yourself is quite weird. <laughs> um, it's literally like them doing that. They're trained to read and not just read, but interpret, perform emotionally yeah listen to everyone else around them play with respond play under play over watch the conductor and this whole thing moves like an ocean in perfect sync and they're constantly using every sense available to them to adapt adjust change move and breathe wow 
So, and they're under huge pressure. They might have huge solos and they're reading these notes, which is quite complex. So imagine if I'd said to you, I want you to read Latin and fluently and this, at this speed and without, without making one mistake. Yes. It's, you're on, your mind is working at a million miles an hour in that situation to not screw up. Yes. So that's what it's like for them. Wow. Yeah. So after that concert, Simone from Lewin was there and she came up and went, we need an orchestra for the Lewin concert. In like were away. two months time and oh, we were away. People started booking us and I could have done it four years prior. I mean, I, well, not four years. It would have been two years prior. I could have done it prior, but I just didn't realize how important saying something existed was instead of telling people this can exist. I can do it if you need me to. Yes. When I said it exists, it's called Per Symphony Orchestra. We'd still never played. We'd never had a rehearsal, but simply saying it existed. It's like popcorn. Bang. Everyone's like, okay, we'll book you. I yes. have no idea of the power of naming something and making it real. Yes. Mm. Yes, I've had I've had something similar with the podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You just have to start doing it and say that you're doing it, and then before you know it, you're doing it. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. As I am now. So that was then, and how has it progressed since then? Just build, I, building on performance, on performance, on performance. It has evolved, and um. My my initial huge impetus was that Western Australia has this beautiful climate and lots of open spaces. And in England, performances under the stars located across the United Kingdom bring communities together from a catchment of an hour's drive. You can jump in your car, mm. drive for an hour to Leeds Castle, and every other village and town within a mile, an hour's radius is there in front of that stage, waving a flag, singing at the top of their voices, along to a monster symphony orchestra. And it's the most brilliant collective fun. And if it wasn't for those kind of concerts where kids can freely run up to the stage and stand underneath a violinist's hand and watch that at close quarters, I don't think people would be inspired in the way that, you know, a concert hall imposes Mm. a restriction on you to stick in your seat and not make a noise. That's really tough for a kid. So I was like, wow, the first thing I want to do build an orchestra that can play big open air concerts, take advantage of this incredible climate in places from Quinana to Katanning and Broome to Geraldton, as well as Joondal up to Jinjin. So I really wanted to build that. Yes. That was going to be super hard. So initially we were just for hire. So I had no, no money to risk. I mean, I'd risked, I'd spent all of my savings and eventually gave up my consulting to keep working on the orchestra and making it all happen, but worked pretty much on my own. Um, with Gaitan and you know it was a case of well I'm running out of money and I've got to find a way to support myself and I yes. need sponsors and you know it was all big so I was like I can't risk what I can't lose I can only put on a concert with a downside if I have that money to lose and I yeah. began to get to the point where I didn't have it so what I needed to do was just make the orchestra so damn good and so clever and you know that I could start mm. putting money in the coffers and find sponsors who would support us to build that up so I could take a risk. Yeah. That's taken a long time. I've taken risks over the years. So the other part of the orchestra was that I wanted to give musicians work. Yes. Because there was so much talent here. And they were saying to me, Bobby, you've worked in the corporate world. We haven't. You know how to do this. You've got some business savvy. For God's sake, if anyone can create something that's going to work, you will. So I kind of felt this obligation that I was one of the few musicians that not only have I done a huge amount of orchestral playing, but I actually thought, actually, I do know how to do this. I do know how to run a business. Yep. Um, so if anyone's going to give this a go, I kind of have to, you know, I have to make this work because I'm one of the few people that possibly can. And I don't mean to be arrogant. 
like that, but it takes so much time and commitment to be a musician that you can't spend time learning what a PL is and, you know, what Porter's Five Forces is and strategy. So I'd had this gift of time in the corporate world. Yes. But the other aim was it makes me super sad when people, and a lot of people in WA compared to England, said the symphony's not my thing. So we in England grow up with music yes. a lot. We're very exposed to it in a mm. way that they're not here in Western Australia. So you're talking about the audience. Yeah. It's not my thing. Correct. And that would break my heart. I'd just be like, because you, you, you just don't know what it can offer you, but you won't give it a go. Because in your mind, it's something that old people go to and it's something you have to endure for an hour. And I mean that with all due respect to orchestras playing classical music. It is tough to sit in a concert hall and listen to Marla for an hour and ask any member of Perth Symphony Orchestra, how often do they buy a ticket to see a classical symphony? And they'll just be like, I find it really hard to sit there. <laughs> so I'm like, yes. God damn it. If we as classical musicians are finding it that hard, it's no, yes. you know, and it's not that we don't love classical music, but how am I going to get people into it? Because I truly feel that it can change people's lives. I literally believe it. You know, I feel what, what that. What is it about the symphony orchestra then that you believe touches people and changes people's lives? Because throw back to the start of this conversation when I said, I just still am mind blown by the fact that pipes and drums and reeds and strings and guts and all the different bits of an orchestra can sound like perfection yes. and can move me to feel something. I still find that fascinating. And so because I'm on this mission to let people know what an orchestra is capable of, we tackled um, unplugged the music of Nirvana. Yes. And I thought, yeah, so this is 10 days ago. I'm still in recovery mode. <laughs> I thought if I can create a show where a symphony orchestra plays Nirvana, and this isn't just adding stuff over the top of a band, we removed the band. There was no guitar. There was no bass. It was pure symphony orchestra. We had a drum kit, but he was tapping it like percussion as Dave Grohl would have done on the MTV unplugged show. Yeah. So we recreated the MTV unplugged in New York show, which Nirvana did in 1993. It was an acoustic yeah. show. And it's quite an event. Yeah. And a lot of that music was super dark. I mean, Kurt Cobain was dead five months later and a lot, he insisted on flooding the TV studio with lilies and black candles. Yeah. Quote, like a funeral. There's no doubt in my mind or anybody else's that Kurt Cobain knew his life wasn't going to be around much longer. He'd done several suicide attempts. This entire show was a suicide note, as some people say. Yes. Five months later, he'd blown his head off. So I'm like, I'm about to create a show and put the orchestra as one of the world's most iconic grunge rock bands playing music that essentially tells the story of someone who's suicidal. What could possibly go wrong? You know, I, <laughs> you know, the closer we got to the show and, you know, the, the, this was the singer Justin's idea that we try this, but I was like, God, I'm mad. But what I wanted to show was that essentially simple rock songs that are two chords if you add the depth of what an orchestra can bring that the trumpets can add screamy notes over the top that add a level of anxiety you know like the violins in psycho when yes. she's in the shower we can add that tension or the lush strings come in and add a sense of peace you know kurt cobain had this insane sense of peace about him as well as angst i wanted to show that an orchestra by playing that simple music and Nirvana songs are simple, could bring a world of emotion to people, that that is what is so amazing about a symphony, that it's not two-dimensional, it's a hundred-dimensional. Yes. So the minute before the audience came in, other than the fact I honestly thought I was going to vomit, I've never been that nervous. I saw people coming in in ripped jeans and Nirvana T-shirts, 
to see an orchestra and I was like, oh shit, I have got this so wrong. And I thought, you know, we start one of their heaviest songs, Lithium, with flutes, doing a flute duet. And like Ash Gibson Grieg, the composer, absolutely got what I was trying to do and arranged these things so brilliantly. But I just felt sick. I thought, you know what, they're going to literally listen to flutes playing grunge and they're going to get up and walk out and go, this is not the Nirvana I know and love. I was right. They sat there, they cried, they danced. People afterwards didn't quite know how to express what they'd just experienced, but they'd seen the music of a band performed insanely brilliantly by Justin Burford, who was the vocalist. But... Um, Incredible rain in the background. I know, isn't this amazing? <laughs> All that beautiful sunshine I spoke about in Western Australia. <laughs> yes. Sounds like blooming yes. Merseyside, anyway. No, go on. But yeah, the orchestra, it did what I knew it can do. And our musicians just layered up that sound and took people on that emotional journey, thus demonstrating to an audience new to the symphony that a symphony has a power over people that so few things in this world do. It's an incredible... Um, it's, a, it's an incredible epicenter of vibration. Uh, you know, it, it's created sound. Yes. And, and nowadays we spend a lot of time listening to music through MP3s, which is very compressed, very watered down. Mm. Um, you know, we, don't, we barely even listen to CDs, which have the original sort of .wav, which is yeah. full range of sound. Yeah. We have it all condensed down so it's nice and neat. It sits on our iPhone yeah. and it's just enough for us to listen to yeah from i'm no sound technician but if, if if my knowledge is correct so you've got just enough yet you go and sit in front of a symphony orchestra you, you've just got a whole epicenter of vibration that's coming absolutely out. You, you yeah know, even from a even from a physics point of view you're just creating all this vibration which is coming through people it can't not do something absolutely and you're talking bang on some of the stuff I say. We had our chamber orchestra rehearsing in the music room at Scotch, so we have a, a cupboard at Scotch College, which we're very grateful for, where the orchestra's based. And we were rehearsing our chamber orchestra, which is this much smaller group yes. upstairs in the music room. Now, Scotch music room has got walls lined mm. with guitars and percussion instruments, and a grand piano is sitting there, and a drum kit and congas and marimbas are all surrounding us. And this, the orchestra is playing Vivaldi and every instrument is buzzing and playing harmonics. And our concert master, Paul, is like, can, we, yeah, can yeah. we stop these things from vibrating? Because even off a few instruments, and it's because guitars are hollow, but we as humans are also cavities. Yes. And we, water. in our way, correct, would vibrate like those instruments. And that's why live music physically touches you and we resonate with it. And it has this unbelievable impact on mm. us that can make us burst out laughing can make us feel you know um instantly bring us to tears instantly yes. and it has you know we recently did a ted talk i got phoned by SciTech, and this is what's so unbelievable about my job every day is like here's another insane opportunity to do something insane with music and talented people and connect with an audience yes and change them. And I love that. I love that it's constantly changing people and it's changing me. And I got this phone call. We did this brilliant talk, um, amazing scientists, Andrew and Alan, that we worked with, Music and the Brain. And Alan's research is phenomenal. And what mm. he was saying is that essentially, if I sang you a nursery rhyme, Bryn, you and I probably know similar ones because we're both yes. English. Yeah. 
you'd probably be able to finish it and yet you probably don't remember any poetry that you studied at school. If I asked you to explain a chemistry formula, you won't remember that. And yet you'll remember a nursery rhyme. Yes. And yet you haven't sung it for 20 years. I could sing you a pop song from the 80s yep. and you can sing me the verse. You can actually sing me most of it and yet you might not have actually sung it for 20 years. So where is that? Where's that sitting in you? And they've discovered that your music memory is the last part of your memory to go. It's also the most powerful and it's inexplicable as to why we can retain language if it's accompanied by music. But it helps us vividly recall, remember, move, feel... So you can hear a piece of music you heard at uni and instantly you're back on the bus. You're, yes, it takes you back to place. You can even see what friends are wearing. It's mm. in the most insane recall. And that power to connect us to who we've been, to connect us to people in our past, to connect us to you know people we haven't thought about for years and years but had a special place and recall them through mm. music is beyond powerful. It means that we connect with our history it means we connect with our family. It means we connect with our present. Hmm. And I think that that is just the unique power of music. And there is no substitute for it. And it's yeah. fundamental. It's fundamental to us as humans. Hmm. So well, brains, brains themselves work on different waves and, and, and frequencies. And so there's got to be something in that. Similarly, you, know, you can delve down the whole of um, quantum physics that looks at vibrations and how that influences the universe and what have you so i i i've often thought that there's something beyond just correct music yeah that you actually listen to with your ears and enjoy there's that. a reason that way back with plato and you know sophocles and all of these original incredible thinkers and people from our past that math science and music were the core subjects yes there's no coincidence that's the foundation of all contemporary learning and history and philosophy now we just think it's a luxury and if a primary school teacher you know gets the chance to teach kids music for an hour a week it's kind of superfluous nice to have yes i could not disagree more powerfully mm. that i am who i am and everything i do because i've had music in my life and I feel if more people had that and could connect with it, their lives would be incredibly different and enriched and they would be capable of doing more and thinking more and thinking more creatively and being more innovative and just having a different kind of life. Mm. Like It's that fundamental to me. Yes. So the more people I can permeate yes. and literally, I mean, like, and I've reflected on this, this is my aspiration of more being, more reflection. Okay. That if my tombstone could say, that as a result of stuff that Borby did, 2% more West Australians immersed themselves in music and classical music and were able to do something because of it, then tick the bloody box because 2% is huge. Yes. So, you know, that's my mission is that I want to reach lots of people and not just with Nirvana, but if it's I have 20, to do, people, isn't it? <laughs> if I have to, um, you know, but get them into it, like get them to really engage, not just have a one-off experience, go, I'm going to put more music in my life. I'm going to go more regularly. I'm going to participate. I'm going to go sing in a choir. I'm going to encourage my kids to learn. I'm going to take up an instrument and feel that flow that we sing discussed. More in the shower. <laughs> Everything. Put your car stereo on, open your windows and start singing. And I guarantee, like literally, if you're ever feeling shit, sing your favorite songs for 20 minutes and tell me if you're still crying at the end of it and you still feel shit. I promise you. Yes. I literally think it's that simple. For anyone studying, you know, suffering from chronic depression, sing. Yes. Sing and sing loudly. Do your something whole, upbeat. Yeah, because your whole body Maybe will reverberate. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe not Nick Cave. But even yeah. even then, yeah. even Nick Cave, there's a, a therapeutic purging that happens, even singing that. Yes. That making your body resonate like an instrument, as it would do when you're listening to an orchestra, will profoundly change where you're at in that moment. And I, it, it is unequivocal. So I hope I can get a small percentage of the people that experience PSO and our musicians are gifted yes. and want to be able to change people's lives. They want to, they don't just want to play for the sake of playing. They want to play to get a response. But if I can get them from Nirvana to something sublimely beautiful from Debussy to Rachmaninoff to Vivaldi score, tick, Excellent. big tick, Bobby. <laughs> so how are you going to do that? We're doing it. You day know. by day, inch by inch, we, you know, and Belinda, who works with me at my Maybe office. Maybe we should leave with the health benefits. Ah, oh, I know, honestly. <laughs> Belinda, who works with me, who literally has built the orchestra as much as I have over the past three years, like her work is just unbelievable. She was like, Bobby, this is my favorite comment. After the Nirvana show, one person had said, I came to see your George Michael show and now your Nirvana show. So good honor, George yeah. Michael to Nirvana. And she said, until those two shows, I'd never seen an orchestra before and I didn't think I'd like it. I am so wrong. From now on, you've changed my world. I'm in. I'm in. Excellent. So there's one of my 20,000. It's really hard for me. <laughs> it's really hard for me to measure. I don't know how I'm going to measure this 20,000. And, you know, my board set me that challenge. Or, you know, how am I going to prove that I've got 2% of the population into orchestras? I'm like, it's just going to come from the more, you know, well, actually on one level, you know, we turned over 1.1 million last year and we've had one small, you know, and I thank the government for the $10,000 grant we got over a year ago, but we've had one $10,000 grant from the government. That's it. Yes. I can only grow to that size and make that amount of money coming in and pay the amount of money I do to musicians if we're good and if people are buying tickets. So the fact that we are growing and people are asking us to come and play for them is surely demonstrating that people are wanting an orchestra and more and more. So if I can do that, if I can somehow do that, then I'll be pretty proud. Yeah. Scott, any other exciting projects for the future? Do you know, we've had an we're explosion. Going, we're going from George Michael to Nirvana. Well, we've where, got, where we, are we now? Do you know, I'm, I, I, I Please just... Please don't say take that. Off, no. Sorry. Well, no. Okay, close. <laughs> I... I have... No, just to take, to play, take No, but I have an insane <laughs> desire. And look, I can't just be... You know what? I run an orchestra. I can go, actually. We're going to do this. I can actually make that call. Hey, I, I run a podcast and I come and meet the people you can, who yeah, I true, want to meet. Yeah, true. Good point. So there is a bit of that, but I mean, I value my team as well. So, yes. um, oh my God, the world's our oyster. We could do the Ramones, you know, the Doors. I'd love to explore Radiohead because they're so musically mm. deep and rich. I love Madonna. Her songs are so varied. Kylie and Madonna would actually make brilliant orchestral shows. I mean, look, all of those... I actually really want to do large scale classical pieces, but that I present them like rock concerts. And right. there are an awful lot of pieces in classical that are rock. Yes. So, you know, I would, I'm looking at how I could do something like Holst's planets, but like no one's ever done it where you feel like you're in space and you're seeing planets and you're breathing gas and not, not, not yeah, like, yeah. but you are walking on a star cloud and the feeling of that orchestra is hitting you and the sheer magnitude of Jupiter and the power of Mars and the quirkiness of Pluto. All of these incredible pieces are coming at you where science meets philosophy meets music in some crazy concert. And if I can get as many people to buy a ticket to the planets as I can to a Nirvana, Nirvana, Happy Borby. 
utopia tick. I'll have got, I'll just go, okay, now I'm doing what I really want to be doing and I'm doing it right. Excellent. Excellent. So follow the journey. <laughs> See if I do this. See if I, I could stuff it up. I could play take that and lose all our, no, sorry, <laughs> take that and lose all our fans. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Normally I would at this point ask you what success looks like for Bobby, but I think we've got a very clear yeah, idea of totally. what the future looks like. Um, outside of the orchestra and, and working behind it, what do you do to keep yourself grounded? <laughs> Uh, think about what I need to do to keep myself <laughs> grounded. Look, I'm a passionate cook. Yes. I love to cook. And, um, guys on my partner is the most extraordinary human I've ever met. He's, uh, every day with him is different. So I spend time doing whatever with him, whether it's a sunset walk or something crazy. You yeah. know, he's up for trying stuff. I go to a lot of concerts too. I, to love to experience live music. Yes. Um, and I love seeing young people play. I love seeing that raw talent where someone's voice or guitar or violin is just so organically brilliant, effortlessly brilliant. I find that hugely exciting and that's a brilliant way for me to relax. So whilst it's still work, it's not work. Yeah. So cooking, reading, spending time with Geisel, but there's not a lot of time for that because Perth Symphony's a bit huge. A bit huge and a bit encompassing. Yeah. Awesome. If you could go back, this would be interesting. If you could go back right to the start of, let's say, your time before you went to Oxford University and give that Bobby some advice, what would it be? Ooh, do you know that's the reason that's hard is because the the – devastating impact of being asked to leave Bond was so massive. I'd want to tell myself something that would protect me from that because that has been a hole in the heart for me for so long. How could I have done something that I was so passionate about and got it so wrong and upset so many people without even knowing like, you know, the girls were literally, how could you not tell it was so bad? I was like, it was like, it's been bad. I didn't even notice. But if that hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. It would be that sliding doors moment that really took me somewhere else. So I don't think I'd tell myself any different. I would abs- I still believe that you've got to try everything. And I'm a firm believer of don't ask, don't get. If there's something you want to do, no one's just going to offer it to you if they don't know you want to do it. But if you're like, I'd love to try that. Will you book this orchestra? Will you engage me to do this? Pick up the phone. Will you give us this opportunity? I'd still just reinforce that, that just you have to be prepared to be brave and get on the phone and face rejection because if you get a yes, that's like, yes, moment. Indeed. Mm. So, yeah, that's a tough question. Mm. I'd want to protect myself from some of the stuff I've gone through by being different, but actually... Would it have got you to where you are now? I'm really in love with my job and I love the people I get to work with and they are so inspiring and so grateful that I'm helping get them work and the mm. audiences when I see people like popcorn pop with joy at seeing an orchestra that they didn't think they were going to like. I mean, God, how, how flipping rewarding is that? How lucky am I? Do you miss, miss, pardon me, do you miss being in the middle of it? Yeah. Yeah. I ache sometimes <laughs> standing on the side of the stage going. Will we see Bobby in the middle of it again? 
God damn it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they'll be... How much practice do you do nowadays? When was the last time you picked up an instrument? On Saturday. Right. (laughs) Played a gig on Saturday. So I still play. Yeah, I still play. Just keep your hand in. Yeah. And it gives me so much pleasure still. Making music with other people, and this is in cultures all over the world. If you take Mm. away everything from a person's life, you can go to the poorest community in India. Yes. And they will be sitting cross-legged on a rug making music together. It is singularly the most enriching thing. People are rich when they play music together. End of. End of. And I find that. Yeah, it's it's awesome still playing. I will never stop playing. Excellent. Mm. Excellent. Well, this has been an amazing experience being able to talk to you and and listen to this story. Um, the journey has been something else. The passion has been something else. And then to actually, you know, talk about the effect of actually sitting there and listening to an orchestra. And, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm really quite touched and, and um, feel quite privileged to have listened to the story. So thank you very much, Bobby. Well, it's uh, so strange to actually sit and go from start to finish with someone. I'm like, <laughs> cool, right. That has been quite a journey, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, thank you so much. And uh, thank you to any of the listeners out there who have listened to all of this. I feel 100% sure you will have got stacks out of this and tons to think about. And I sincerely hope you'll be being down the door to get a ticket to the next <laughs> performance of Perth Symphony Orchestra. Oh, one last question. What? You talk about taking it to different places. Have we got any uh, interesting locations in mind in the future in Western Australia? I've got some places I would absolutely love to play, whether we actually can get away with it. There's a basement car park in Fremantle that I think is uber cool. That I, mm. I just have this fixation of playing Sibelius in a car park. Don't ask me why. But actually, some of the locations that we are heading to for the first time over the next five months, which is our summer, we're going to be playing for communities in Quinana, uh, Rockingham, hopefully Serpentine, Jarrodale, some places Brilliant. under the stars, surrounded by WA at its best with eucalyptus trees and Jarrah trees. And to me, taking the orchestra to those situations where you've got something that's normally so pristine in a concert hall, being so part of nature and playing for people, that's awesome. Excellent. Yeah. And how can people find out about where you're playing? Everything's always on our website, perthsymphony.com. Website. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, we're, we're very active on social media. So if you always want to see behind the scenes, all the cool stuff, you can hit us up Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's always at Perth Symphony. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So again, Bobby, thank you so much for your time. Um, WA Real is about real stories from people here in Western Australia. And this certainly has been. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Brian.